Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Historic Eight Documents by Charu Mazumdar Our Tasks in the Present Situation, January 28, 1965 The Congress government has arrested 1,000 communists during the last one month. Most of the central and provincial leadership are in jail today. Gulzariel Onanda has announced that he will not accept the verdict of the electorate, and he is not and he has started telling absurd stories about guerrilla warfare. This offensive against democracy has begun because of the internal and international crisis of capitalism. The Indian government has gradually become the chief political partner in the expansion of American imperialism's hegemony of the world. The main aim of American imperialism is to establish India as the chief reactionary base in Southeast Asia. The Indian bourgeoisie is unable to find any way to solve its internal crisis. The perennial food crisis, its ever-increasing price level, are creating obstacles for the five-year plan. And as a result of this, there is no other way for the Indian bourgeoisie to come out from the crisis excepting importing more and more Anglo-American imperialist capital. As a result of this dependence on imperialism, the internal crisis of capitalism is bound to increase day by day. The Indian bourgeoisie has not been able to find out any other way except killing democracy, faced with the instructions of American imperialism and its own internal crisis. There were imperialist instructions behind these arrests, since the American police chief, quote, MacBride, unquote, was in Delhi during the arrest of the communist, and the widespread arrest took place only after discussions with him. By killing democracy, there can be no solution of this crisis and the Indian bourgeoisie also will not be able to solve this crisis. The more the government will be dependent on imperialism, the more it will fail to solve its internal crisis. With every passing day, the people's discontent will increase, and with every passing day, the internal conflict of the bourgeoisie is bound to increase. Imperialist capital demands the arrest of communists as a precondition before investing, so also it wants a temporary solution of the food problem. To solve this food crisis, some steps to stop trade and profiteering in food are necessary, and it is for this that control is necessary. In a country of a backward economy like India, this control invariably faces opposition from a large section. This conflict of the bourgeoisie is not mainly a conflict between monopoly capitalists and national bourgeoisie. This conflict is mainly between the trading community and the monopoly industrialists. In a country of a backward economy, trade in foodstuff and essential commodities is inevitable for the creation of capital, and control creates obstacles in the creation of this capital, and as a result of that, internal conflict takes the form of internal crisis. India is a vast country. It is not possible to rule the 450 million people of this country by following a policy of repression. It is not possible for any imperialist country to take such a big responsibility. 
American imperialism is writing in death pangs and keeping its commitment to those countries of the world which it has assured of giving aid. Meanwhile, an industrial crisis has developed in America. It can be seen from President Johnson's utterance itself that the number of unemployed is increasing in the country. According to the official statement, 4 million people are absolutely unemployed. 35 million people are semi-unemployed, and in factories, also semi-unemployment is continuing. So the Indian government will fail to suppress the ever-increasing discontent of the people. This attack on democracy will inevitably transform the people's discontent into struggles. Some indication of the shape of the protest movement of tomorrow is available from the language movement of Madras. So, the coming era is not merely an era of big struggles, but also an era of big victories. The Communist Party, therefore, will have to take the responsibility of leading the people's revolutionary struggles in the coming era, and we shall be able to carry out the responsibility successfully only when we are able to build up the party organization as a revolutionary organization. What is the main basis for building up a revolutionary organization? Comrade Stalin has said, quote, the main basis for building up a revolutionary organization is the revolutionary cadre, unquote. Who is a revolutionary cadre? A revolutionary cadre is he who can analyze the situation at his own initiative and can adopt policies according to that. He does not wait for anyone's help. Our organizational slogans. One, every party member must form at least one activist group of five. He will educate the cadres of this activist group in political education. Two, every party member must see to it that no one from this group is exposed to the police. Three, there should be an underground place for meetings of every activist group. If necessary, shelters for keeping one or two underground will have to be arranged. Four, every activist group must have a definite person for contacts. Five, a place should be arranged for hiding secret documents. Six, a member of the activist group should be made a member of the party as soon as he becomes an expert in political education and work. Seven, after he becomes a party member, the activist group must not have any contact with him. This organizational style should be firmly adhered to. This organization itself will take up the responsibility of revolutionary organization in the future. What will be the political education? The main basis of the Indian Revolution is agrarian revolution. So, the main slogan of the political propaganda campaign will be, make successful the agrarian revolution. The extent to which we are able to propagate the program of agrarian revolution among the workers and the petty bourgeoisie and educate them in it, to that extent that they will be educated in political education. Every activist group should discuss the class analysis among the peasantry, the propaganda of the program of agrarian revolution. Long live the revolution. Make the People's Democratic Revolution successful by fighting against revisionism, 1965. As a revisionist thinking nestled in the Indian party for a long time, we cannot build up a correct revolutionary party. Our primary task today is to build up a correct revolutionary party fighting uncompromisingly against the revisionist thinking. 1. The first among revisionist thought is to regard, quote, Krishak Sabha, unquote, peasants' organization, and trade unions as the only party activity. 
Party comrades often confuse the work of peasants' organization and trade union with the political work of the party. They do not realize that the political tasks of the party cannot be carried out through the peasants' organization and trade union. But it should be remembered at the same time that the trade union and the peasants' organization are one of the many weapons for serving our purpose. On the other hand, to regard peasants' organization and trade union work as the only work of the party can only mean plunging the party in the mire of economism. The proletarian revolution cannot be made successful without an uncompromising struggle against this economism. This is the lesson that Comrade Lenin has given us. 2. Some comrades think and are still thinking today that our political task ends with the launching of a few movements on demands, and they regard a single victory through these movements as a political victory of the party. Not only that, these comrades seek to confine the responsibility of carrying out the political tasks of the party within the limits of these movements only. But we, the true Marxists, know that carrying out the party's political responsibility means that the final aim of all propaganda, all movements and all organizations of the party, is to establish firmly the political power of the proletariat. It should be remembered always that if the words, quote, seizure of political power, unquote, are left out, the party no longer remains a revolutionary party. Although it will remain a revolutionary party in name then, it will be actually reduced to a reformist party of the bourgeoisie. When speaking of the seizure of political power, some mean the center. They think that with the gradual expansion of the limits of the movement, our only aim will be to capture power centrally. This thinking is not only wrong, this thinking destroys the correct revolutionary thinking within the party and reduces it to a reformist party. At the World Trades Union Congress in 1953, the well-tested and well-established Marxist leader of China, member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China, asserted firmly that in the coming days the tactics and strategy of the unfinished revolution of Asia, Africa, and Latin America will follow the footsteps of China. In other words, the strategy and tactics of these struggles will be area-wide seizure of power. It was not only that comrade and member of the Central Committee of the Chinese Party, but comrade Lenin also mentioned area-wide seizure of power in his writings. Above all, the working class in Russia gave a concrete proof of Lenin's conclusion when they kept the town of Kronstadt under seizure for three days. In the era of socialism, all the elements of area-wide seizure of power are present in our framework. A burning instance of the fact that this is possible is the Naga Rebellion. The main condition of this area-wide seizure of power is weapons in the hands of the revolutionary forces. To think of seizing power without arms is nothing but an idle dream. Our party has a very long history of struggles. We gave the leadership to the peasants and workers' movements, in the extensive countryside of North Bengal. Naturally, we shall have to examine and analyze the movements of the past and draw lessons from them, and we shall have to move forward anew in the present revolutionary era. Analysis of the concrete events and experiences of the Tebhaga movement in 1946 and 1947. The participant peasants in this movement numbered about six million. It should be remembered that in the entire peasant movement, this was a golden era. In the massiveness of the movement, in the intensity of emotions, in the expression of class hatred, this movement was the highest stage of class struggle.
To help understand that stage, I am citing a few moving instances of that movement. A day's event. I was then living underground in the interest of the movement. I have personally witnessed the tide of the revolutionary movement. I have seen how a single little note made a man ten miles away come running like a madman. On the other hand, I have also seen standing beside the husband, a newly wed young Muslim woman who is subjected to demonic barbarous assault by the class enemy. I have heard the pathetic appeal of that unarmed husband, comrade, can't you take revenge? The very next moment, I have seen the intense hatred of the exploited against the exploiter, have seen that awful spectacle of killing a living man in cold blood by twisting his throat. Comrades, the above-mentioned incidents demand from us some analysis. Firstly, what was the historical reason as a result of which this massive form of that movement in those days could create intense hatred against a class enemy? Secondly, what again were the causes that turned that vast movement into a failure? First, it was the slogan of seizure of political power that created the massive form of the movement of those days, created the intense hatred against the class enemy. On the opposite side, it was the slogan that made the class enemy adopt his class role. It is the expression of this that we find in the barbaric rape of the young peasant woman and the beastly violent attack to smash the movement. On the other hand, the peasants also did not hesitate to attack the class enemy. This raises the question, why couldn't power be seized even after this? It couldn't be seized for one reason only. It was because the fighting people of those days looked to the center for arms. We then lost faith in the path indicated by Lenin. We hesitated in those days to accept that bold declaration of Lenin to carry forward the revolution by collecting arms locally and seizing power area-wide. As a result, the unarmed peasants could not stand up and resist in the face of arms. Even those who fought defying death had also to retreat finally. The lesson that has to be drawn from the mistakes of those days is that the responsibility of collecting arms lies with the local organization, not with the center. So the question of collecting arms will have to be put up before every activist group from now on. Dao, knives, sticks, all these are weapons, and with their help at opportune moments, firearms will have to be snatched. The events described above are manifestations of revisionist thinking in its theoretical aspect. Now, from the organizational point of view, those mistakes will have to be found out which were hurdles in the way of a correct leadership of the vast movements of those days, so that they may not find a nest afresh in the revolutionary party. To smash all those mistakes in the party, the party will today first have to establish its leadership over the mass organizations. Four, a review of the history of the party over a long period would reveal that as a result of the revisionist thinking of regarding leaders of trade unions and peasant organizations, Krishak Sabah, as the real representatives of the people, the party was reduced to a party of a few individuals. Because of this thinking, the party's political activities became inert, and the proletariat also became deprived of a correct revolutionary leadership. All movements became confined within the bonds of movements on demands. As a result, party members became enthusiastic over a single victory and despondent over a single defeat. Secondly, as a result of overestimating the importance of this organization, another type of localism is born. 
Comrades think that the party will suffer a serious loss if any comrade is shifted from his area, and they take this as a loss to personal leadership. From this localism, another type of opportunism develops. Comrades think that their area is the most revolutionary. Naturally, nothing should be done here, so that there is police persecution. Because of this viewpoint, they do not analyze the political situation of the entire country. As a result, commandism develops, and organizational and daily propaganda work suffers. As a result, when there is a call for a struggle, they assert that they will not do any small work and commit adventurism. Naturally, the question arises, what are the methods that help to get out of these deviations? What are those Marxist directives which become essential tasks for building up a revolutionary party? Firstly, all works of organization of the future will have to be done as complementary to the party. In other words, the mass organizations will have to be used as a part of serving one main purpose of the party. For this reason, naturally, party leadership will have to be established over the organizations. Secondly, immediately from now, the entire effort of the party will have to be spent on recruiting newer and newer cadres and on forming countless activist groups consisting of them. It should be remembered that in the coming era of struggles, the masses will have to be educated through the illegal machinery. So every party member from now on will have to be made habituated to illegal work. To get used to illegal work, it is an essential task for every activist group to paste illegal posters. It is only through this process that they will be able to act as the bold core in leading struggles in the era of struggles. Otherwise, the revolution will be reduced to a petty bourgeois idle dream. Thirdly, it is through these active organizations that the party will be able to establish its leadership over the mass organizations. So from now on, we shall have to help the members of the activist groups so that they can fearlessly criticize the leaders of the mass organizations and their work. Fourthly, the work of the mass organizations will have to be discussed and decided upon in the party before it is implemented in the mass organizations. It should be remembered here that the policies of the mass organizations have been wrongly practiced so long in the party. To hold discussions on party decisions is not called democratic centralism. This thinking is not in accordance with Marxism. And from all this thinking, the conclusion has to be drawn that the party's program will be adopted from below. But if it is adopted from the lower level, then the correct Marxist way is not implemented. and all these activities, there inevitably are bourgeois deviations. The Marxist truth of democratic centralism is that the party directive coming from the higher leadership must be carried out. Because the party's highest leader is he who has firmly established himself as a Marxist through a long period of movements and theoretical debates. We have the right to criticize party decisions, but once a decision has been taken, if anyone criticizes it without implementing it, or obstructs work, or hesitates to implement it, he will be guilty of the serious offense of violating party discipline. As a result of having this idea of party democracy as that of a debating society, the road for espionage inside the party is thrown open. Naturally, the revolutionary leadership of the party then becomes bankrupt and the working class is deprived of a correct revolutionary leadership. This petty bourgeois sort of thinking inside the party leads the party onto the verge of destruction. 
And this is the manifestation of petty bourgeois thinking inside the party. Their comfortable living and attitude of undisciplined criticism reduces the party to a mere debating society. This thinking becomes a hurdle in the path of building up a party of the proletariat, strong as iron. Fifthly, the undisciplined life of the petty bourgeoisie draws them towards undisciplined criticism. That is, they do not want to criticize within the limits of the organization. To get rid of this deviation, we should remain conscious of the Marxist viewpoint regarding criticism. The characteristics of Marxist criticism are 1. Criticisms must be made within the party organization, that is, at the party meeting. 2. The aim of criticism should be constructive, that is, the aim of criticism is to advance the party from the point of view of principles and organization. And we must always be vigilant that there is no unprincipled criticism within the party. Come, comrades, in the present revolutionary era, let us complete the People's Democratic Revolution by fighting uncompromisingly against revisionism. Long live revolution. What is the source of the spontaneous revolutionary outburst in India? April 9th, 1965. Comrades, two events occurred in the world in the era after the Second World War. As, on the one hand, the naked form of the defeat of the so-called fascist powers was exposed before the people, so also, on the other, the world socialist state system under the leadership of Comrade Stalin created confidence in the minds of the people. As a result, a spontaneous revolutionary outburst was witnessed throughout the entire world. Above all, the success of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, without the war itself, brought about a new revolutionary high tide in the midst of this spontaneous outburst, about which the Communist Party of India could never make a correct assessment. As a result, the revolutionary change in the whole of Asia, Africa, and Latin America brought about by this great revolution was never noticed by us. Hence, we failed to understand the significance of this bold revolutionary slogan, the clarion call of 650 million revolutionary people. Quote, See, we have on our own taken ourselves onto the path of socialism. No, even U.S. imperialism failed to check the tremendous motion of our irresistible revolutionary current. Unquote. But the fighting people did not make the mistake. That revolutionary spark spread to Vietnam, Cuba, every country in the whole of Latin America. The people of India responded to that call. We saw the expression of this in the spontaneous democratic revolution of 1949, which was dimmed by us in trying to confine it within the narrow bounds of a socialist revolution. Not only that, there was an attempt to negate the significance of the entire Chinese revolution by openly criticizing the source of the spontaneous movement. The great Chinese revolution and its great leader, comrade Mao Zedong. Above all, later on, it was as a consequence to the denial of this Chinese revolution that the slogan was raised within the party that the revolution will be achieved not through the Chinese path, but only through a truly Indian path. And from here itself was born today's revisionism. It was because of that left sectarianism of those days that we were unable to guide that movement along the correct path. But no, comrades, the tide of that revolutionary movement of 1949 could not be exhausted, because no imperialism could wipe off the Chinese Revolution, the red flag of hope of the city of Peking. 
We saw again that ebbing movement turning into a huge tide in 1951 during the Korean War. It is a full blossoming of this that we saw in spontaneous meetings, processions, and greeting the counterattack made unitedly by China and Korea. It was the objective form of this that we witnessed in the great victory of the Communist Party in the 1951 election. And it was the fighting form of this that we saw in the spontaneous erection of barricades by the fighting masses in 1953 through 54. We could not understand, but the bourgeoisie could understand, could recognize the form of the fighting masses, could know its course. It realized that this great revolution could no longer be ignored, so to dupe the people, it turned its face toward the social state, towards the great Chinese revolution. That is why it participated in Ponch Shiel, in the Bandung Conference. Decadent imperialism also realized that it was not possible to carry on in the old method, so it took on a new form, introduced a new method of exploitation by giving dollars as gift. Neo-colonialism began. When imperialism and all the reactionaries of the world were grouping for a way out, to save themselves, the revisionist policy of the traitor Khrushchev in 1956 made its appearance before them with a the light of new hope. The reactionary government of India found a way to create an illusion about Khrushchev's independent capitalist path. But the reactionary government knew that it was impractical, illusory. That is why the reactionary government of India's bourgeoisie entered into a secret pact with the U.S. imperialism in 1958. That is why in 1959, as it launched an attack on democracy, on the one hand, by suspending the constitution in Kerala, so also it started, on the other hand, slandering against the source of the spontaneous movement, the great Chinese People's Republic. It provided shelter to Tibet's imperialist agent, Dalai Lama. But when in spite of this, the people spontaneously started along the path of struggle, the bourgeoisie without any delay shot dead 80 people. Thus, the last possibility of peaceful transition of socialism ended. But no, comrades, even then the people did not stand still before the government's might. The spontaneous strike of 1960 spread all over India on a massive scale, because the light of Chinese revolution, the container of a force hundred times, thousand times stronger than this force, is showing them the way. That is why, comrades, even without the Communist Party, the people started on a path of struggle. When the fighting people of this spontaneous struggle, being defeated with arms, were thinking of still harder struggle, the slogan of alternative government of 1962 could not create revolutionary enthusiasm in their minds. Because they wanted a reply to the question, what will happen if the Kerala episode is repeated in Bengal? We could not give a correct answer to this question. We could not put forward this correct and bold slogan at that time. In the event of the Kerala episode recurring in Bengal, it is armed struggle that would be the only way of overthrowing the government. But the bourgeoisie did not make any mistake in noticing the image of the militant masses. That is why in 1962, the panic-stricken Indian government attacked the source of the struggle of the fighting masses. It attacked the great Chinese democracy. But two events occurred as a result of which the bourgeoisie itself dug its grave. First, because of the defeat of the armed forces of the bourgeoisie, the naked form of the weakness of this government became as clear as daylight before the fighting masses. The fighting masses found a new light of struggle. Secondly, because of the unilateral withdrawal of the Chinese troops from the Indian areas, 
the poisonous influence of perverted nationalism could not touch the peasants. The bourgeoisie became panic-stricken. It imprisoned the communist. But it could not stop the spontaneous struggle. Work stopped in Bombay. The, quote, dum-dum dewai, unquote, was started. To get out of this terrible situation, the bourgeoisie released the communists and tried to utilize their internal conflicts. But the notorious letter of Donge, the running dog of imperialism, spoiled their hope. A new revolutionary party was formed. Khrushchev fell from power. World revisionism received a terrific blow. The pillar, by depending on which the bourgeoisie had started attacks against China, began to shake in Vietnam. The bourgeoisie saw the danger and found themselves, with their back to the wall, unable to make any retreat. So it attacked, imprisoned 2,000 communists. But the fighting masses gave their verdict in Kerala, and the government saw the outburst of spontaneous movement. It tore off the last mask of democracy. But no, this spontaneous movement cannot be prevented, even by imprisoning hundreds and thousands of communists and resorting to a thousand ways of repression. Because the Chinese revolution cannot be destroyed, no stormy wind can put off the light of that revolution. The delirious bourgeoisie knows that, so it has started raving about its own weak spots. It is trembling, imagining an organization being formed within the military. It has started seeing the ghost of Telangana. Yes, comrades, today we have to speak out courageously in a bold voice before the people that it is the area-wide seizure of power that is our path. We have to make the bourgeoisie tremble by striking hardest at its weakest spots. We have to speak out before the people in a bold voice. See how poor backward China, within 16 years, has with the help of the socialist structure, made its economy strong and solid. On the other hand, we have to expose this traitorous government which has, within 17 years, turned India into a playground of imperialist exploitation. It has converted the entire Indian people into a nation of beggars to the foreigners. Come, comrades, let all toiling people unitedly prepare for armed struggle against this government under the leadership of the working class on the basis of the program of agrarian revolution. On the other hand, let us lay the foundation of the new people's democratic India by building liberated peasant areas through peasant revolts. Let us together, shoulder to shoulder roar, long live the unity of the workers, peasants, and the toiling masses. Long live the imminent armed struggle of India.